You're listening to the Crackpot Crones podcast with Terry Baum and Carolyn Myers. Hello, I'm Carolyn Myers. And I am Terry Baum. And together we are... The Crackpot Crones. Today, we're here to celebrate and to crack open the holiday of Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day! Oh, Terry, thank you so much. (laughs) You know, even though I recognize up front its tacky nature, I have loved celebrating Mother's Day as a mother. You know, mothering, it's just a huge huge job, and it's a lifelong job, as those of us who have children and now grandchildren know. It goes on and on, and it's nice to get that acknowledgement. I especially loved my Mother's Day gifts when my daughters were little and used to make me things. That was wonderful, and I think maybe my very favorite was my daughter, Micah. She was taking a pottery class, and she was probably first or second grade. She was young. She made for Mother's Day a pottery sculpture of our family sitting on the couch watching television. But the father and the two daughters, her sister and her father and her, they are all part of the pottery piece. They are attached to the couch, whereas I, the mother, am separate. So I'm a separate, like, doll that sits on the couch. And she said, and that's so that you can get up and get us food and treats and other things while we're watching television. (laughs) So I always thought that was a a perfect nuclear family representation of a Mother's Day gift. Now, as a daughter, I often felt incredibly inadequate on Mother's Day. I mean, I think I fairly early on realized that this was irrepayable kindness. I am a person who constantly thinks they can do crafts, but rarely finishes them. So my gifts to my mother were usually late. And I also understand how that made me the perfect mark for um, capitalism and commercialization. Buy something for mom to try to assuage this feeling of inadequacy or guilt. But I sometimes started to wonder, what is Mother's Day? Who started Mother's Day? Was this started by like FTD Floris and the Hallmark Corporation with the Hallmark cards? I My guess is that Mother's Day is the biggest seller for both those things. Well, Carolyn, as you and I both found out when we did research on this, Hallmark and the Floris are not the founders of Mother's Day. In fact, Mother's Day was the brainchild of Julia Ward Howe in the 19th century. Now, Julia Ward Howe was very famous for writing the lyrics to the Battle Hymn of the Republic, which was the war anthem of the North during the Civil War. Now, I know you've heard this song. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. Pretty exciting lyrics. I think you'll agree. So this was very important, this song, and Julia Ward Howe became very famous. And after having witnessed the Civil War, she had a great revelation 
and felt very differently about war of any kind. And she realized the important thing was not to call people to arms for war, but to establish true peace. So in 1870, she published a proclamation for Mother's Day for Peace. That was her idea. And the very first time it was ever celebrated was June 2nd of 1872. There was the very first Mother's Day for Peace. And this idea really excited people. And in 1873, 18 cities in the United States plus Rome and Constantinople celebrated Mother's Day for Peace. So for the next 30 years, this idea of Mother's Day for Peace spread all over the world, but it never got official status. For some strange reason, governments were reluctant to set aside a day for peace. Can't imagine why. And after Julia Ward Howe had gone to the great Mother's Day celebration in the sky, the observation of Mother's Day for Peace declined. But Carolyn and I, when we found out about this, we thought this is an incredible idea to take back Mother's Day. And now I am going to deliver. The Mother's Day Proclamation for Peace. Arise then, women of this day. Arise, all women who have hearts. Say firmly, our husbands will not come to us reeking of carnage for caresses and applause. Our sons shall not be taken from us to unlearn all that we have been able to teach them of charity, mercy, and patience. We, the women of one country, will be too tender of those of another country to allow our sons to be trained to injure theirs. From the bosom of a devastated earth, a voice goes up with our own. It says, disarm, disarm. The sword of murder is not the balance of justice. Blood does not wipe out dishonor, nor violence indicate possession. As men have often forsaken the plow and the anvil at the summons of war, let women now leave all that may be left of home for a great and earnest day of counsel. Let them meet first as women to bewail and commemorate the dead. Let them solemnly take counsel with each other as to the means whereby the great human family can live in peace. In the name of womanhood and humanity, I earnestly ask that a general congress of women without limit of nationality may be appointed and held at some place deemed most convenient and the earliest period consistent with its objects to promote the alliance of the different nationalities, the amicable settlement of international questions, the great and general interests of peace. So that's the Mother's Day Proclamation. It's still completely stirring and completely oh, relevant. My gosh, what about it? Women, what about us? 
creating a Mother's Day for peace. Yeah, yeah. Just shifting that focus. Yeah. Yes. Or maybe have two holidays, one Mother's Day for taking your mom out to brunch, and then another one where all the mothers get together. Yeah. I mean, that's where mothers are worth two days. God damn it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, yeah. It's a great piece. Yeah. Really makes, yeah, makes me think. Yeah. Well, so we were extremely stirred by um, that story and this, this, this feminist understanding that that and and leftist political understanding too that there had been this Mother's Day that was celebrated with a, a strong political message within it that was really moving. There's also Mother's Day where you honor your mother, and Terry and I we each wrote pieces, um, personal pieces, and and mine's about my grandmothers rather than my mother. But I'm going to share that story now. And I lived with my grandmothers, and they helped raise me. And that's why I think of them on Mother's Day, too. And it's, it's, a, it's quite an extraordinary story because these two women, my grandmothers, Carrie Ashball Willisford and Edith Perkins Myers, they met each other when they were in college in the 1890s. And later, their children, my mother and father, married each other. And then they lived together, Carrie and Edith, for the last 30 years of their lives. Here's their story. Carrie and Edith met in college at the University of Kansas, Lawrence, in the 1890s. Lawrence, Kansas is one of the few cities in world history to have been founded purely for political rather than geographic reasons. After the infamous Missouri Compromise, which allowed Western states to choose to be pro-slavery or anti-slavery, um, it's a little more complicated than that, but that's it basically. Abolitionist ministers and activists wanted to keep Kansas slave-free upon entering the Union, and they actively sought out Yankee immigrants to come there to be residents of Kansas. And Edith's family was one of those who answered the call. And the University of Kansas had been established right there after the Civil War as one of the first co-ed colleges in the country due to the insistence of suffragists. Actually, there were four people in the, in the first graduating class, and one of them was a woman, and she was the valedictorian. <laughs> I, I don't know why Carrie chose that college. I know she was... Uh, English immigrant with her English immigrant family. And I know they visited relatives in Lawrence, Kansas, while they were looking for a place to settle. They ended up living in Minnesota, but she must have heard about the college then and known that women could be admitted then. And she was determined to get a college education. There were 13 women in Carrie and Edith's class, and they all lived together in a boarding house dormitory and became very close. In fact, they began a circular letter as soon as they dispersed after graduation. And the way this worked was so great. One woman would write a letter to another woman. And then woman number two 
would write a letter and she would put the first letter in with her letter and send it to a third woman. So there were 13 of them. So that by the time it came back to the first writer, there were 13 letters. She would read all the other letters, take out her old letter, write a new one and send the packet along. So it continued in a circle. This tradition continued for 70 years until the 1960s when the remaining few were very old indeed. I can actually remember sitting with my grandmothers when a new package of letters would come in and how they would be so happy and they would gossip. And even once, which I really remember since they never cried, they cried over the death of someone who was in that circle of the letter. I really wish those letters had not been discarded each cycle. What an archive that would make. Edith married my grandfather, Fred Myers, and they bought land in Fallbrook, California in 1902, very, very cheaply on a land grant program. They both had graduated with agriculture degrees and they wanted to grow oranges and avocados and olives, fruits that would never grow in Kansas. Carrie, my other grandmother, on the other hand, earned her degree in rhetoric. To this day, I'm not exactly sure what classes you took to get a degree in rhetoric. And then she struggled to become ordained as a female minister. She married a fellow Englishman, the eccentric preacher Edwin Willisford, in seminary. They moved to Texas, where they were both assigned to ministries. In Texas, a wealthy couple in their congregation offered to pay for the minister's daughter, Joy, my mother, to attend Pomona College in California in the mid-1920s. Carrie agreed that her daughter could go so far, partly because she had visited her old college chum, Edith, in California and loved it there. There wasn't enough money for Joy to return home all the way to Texas for vacations, so Edith sent her son, Fred, who had a Model T, to pick Joy up at college and bring her home to Fallbrook for Thanksgiving. On the way home, they were involved in a bad traffic accident, which were surprisingly common in Southern California in the 1920s, especially as lane markings and stop signs and even general traffic safety rules were fully established only at the end of the decade. Joy sustained a head injury, she couldn't go back to college, and she ended up living with the Myers for six months. And that's how my parents, Carrie's daughter, and Edith's son met. My mother always said she fell in love with my father and his mother at the same time. Edith was round and jolly, with an ample bosom to which she would clasp you, home and farm-oriented, an endless baker of pies. Edith was very different from Carrie, Joy's own mother, who was always busy as a minister's wife and with her own rural ministry in the Texas Plains outside of Houston. She dressed her girls out of the missionary barrels, where congregation members had donated clothes to be sent to overseas missions. And my mother was just, you know, so embarrassed about that. And she was always happiest, my grandma, Carrie, was always happiest after church weddings and especially funerals because there would be leftover funeral food so she didn't have to cook. Carrie's passions always turned to religious pageants, organizing and decorating for social functions at the church, She just wasn't home very much. Joy wanted her children to have her husband's mother, Grandma Myers, Edith, as a grandmother. And indeed, we all benefited from her choice, and we all loved Edith deeply. 
I believe I was the only one who loved Grandma Willis for just as much. When I think of how to describe Carrie when I knew her, I always think of her accoutrements first. She had to wear glasses, which made her eyes look very large. She wore decorative combs in her hair. She had two jewelry boxes full of costume jewelry. And by the time I came along in 1950, she walked with the assistance of a gold-topped cane. When I entered college in 1968, several years after her death, I took along Carrie's ratty old fur stole, her hand-beaded sweaters, and her costume jewelry. Very Janis Joplin. <laughs> Carrie's husband had died in the mid-1930s, and Carrie came to visit her old college friend Edith in sunny Fallbrook. She never left. The three of them, Edith and O'Dad, as everyone called my Grandpa Myers, and Carrie, were a good trio. They were members of the California Arts and Crafts Movement. There was an extensive wood shop, and Carrie turned her creative, creative energies toward word working. She and Odad spent much of their time in the shop, carving all manner of fabulous things and some really uncomfortable furniture, and writing patents for their various inventions, many for improving weaving looms. All three of them wove, and together they edited a weaving newsletter. And they read and studied the Bible. We were a family that read through the entire Bible day by day. A chart, a calendar of days hung in the dining room with a chart attached to it so you could read through the entire Bible in one year. There was an actual stand with my long-deceased Grandpa Willisford's huge Bible on it. And as soon as we sat down to dinner and said a prayer, Grandma Willisford or Odad would read that day's Bible selection. Once a child turned nine, you sometimes took a turn. But after dinner, it was all about reading other things out loud. Fairy tales and early American writers, Hawthorne, Washington Irving, Mark Twain. In the evenings after chores, someone would be tidying up or peeling potatoes for the next day or mending. Someone would be weaving and someone would be reading aloud. You had to read pretty loud because a loom makes a lot of noise. After Odad died in 1958, we moved to San Diego, and we all learned how to fit into the suburbs. I was eight years old, and I loved it, with all the kids around, sidewalks for skating, paved roads for riding your bike. But I'm sure Edith especially must have been lonely. In addition to losing her husband and the home she had lived in since 1902, she had moved away from many interesting friends one of whom had actually run away with the circus and worked for Barnum and Bailey her whole life, and another who drove her old car all over the countryside seeking rare wildflowers, only sometimes staying on the roads. And Carrie had regrets of her own. I read her diary, and on her 75th birthday, she writes of her despair that she is broke and totally dependent on her children. She reflects that at least she won't be a burden for much longer. But then she lived 20 more years to die at 95. Money, in fact, had always been difficult for both of them. And their health was not good. Carrie was lame and worried about her weight. She was fixated on her saccharine tablets and actually panicked when she couldn't find them. And Edith had painful joints and very bad teeth. She was strongly both anti-doctor and anti-spending. I also know my mother was less than thrilled to be taking care of children and parents at the same time. But Carrie and Edith had each other. 
They mended, they chatted, they walked from the house to the back fence and back again seven times every day for exercise. They took up intricate beadwork together in their 80s, and they were boxing fans. They watched all the bouts they could find on TV, banished to Grandma Meyer's little house in our backyard. And they had me. We three were a mutual admiration society. They introduced me to yellow-lined paper and the wonder of a fresh and sharpened pencil. They taught me to type. They read anything I wrote. They hovered inside the screen door on that hot summer when I read Little Women on the porch. And when Beth dies, they bustled right out with cookies and lemonade. They were pretty much always home. After I got home from school, we would sit around, gazing out at the miraculous huge picture window in the main house living room, having a tea party with the good china, not caring that we were ruining our appetites, and reading Shakespeare aloud. My best friend, Sherry, became popular in sixth grade, and I didn't. But she still invited me to her birthday party. She was really afraid I would embarrass her as an oddball and still pretty childish. Recently, she told me that everything went okay until everyone went around saying what we wanted to be when we grew up. I said I wanted to be a grandmother met with stony silence. And now I am. I am a grandmother. For three months currently, I am living with my daughter, Micah, and son-in-law, Will, and Isla and Niles, three years old and five months old, respectively. Both parents have to work, and I am here helping, babysitting and a little cooking and cleaning. It's wonderful, and it can be exhausting. But what it above all feels is completely natural. I was so fortunate to have grown up in an intergenerational house. The 1950s was the end of that for many families. And today, I push the stroller through the woodland trail along the creek to Isla's daycare, and then we all went to the park. A few minutes ago, while I was writing this, I got interrupted, invited downstairs for books and milk. At first, I felt a little irritation. I had writing to finish. But really, what fool would resist books and milk? Carrie and Edith were lifelong friends. They met when they were in their late teens, some of the earliest women to graduate from college in the 1890s. Their children married each other. They lived much of their lives together until their deaths at 95 years old in 1965. And they were the most wonderful grandmothers. Wow, crony, that is just... So beautiful. Doing this podcast caused us to look back at those things. I hadn't thought about that piece and I expanded it greatly. And I feel like I'm glad that I have this. I'm glad because this is something nobody else knows in the same way. It's just so beautiful. Who they were, their relationship with each other and their relationship with you. I'm so happy we're doing a podcast. I know. It's really fantastic. (laughs) Because in fact, I never heard the story in this detail until we did this podcast. No, I never told the story in this detail. I I haven't really even thought of it in this much detail, you know. But I did think uh, my brother, I have one brother, my brother's still alive. He's 15 years older than me. But none of the other cousins or my sister 
are still living. So, and they had a very different experience than me at the ranch because they were a lot older than me and they're all around the same age as each other. So they had the experience of, they lived there, they all lived there, the cousins and the siblings during the depression. So they had that experience, which of course is so vastly different than my experience of the fifties, <laughs> you know, they were there from the depression and into the early 1950s and such, but I, it has occurred to me. And I've talked to my brother about this, uh, that um, I'm going to be, I'm the only one left mm-hmm. that happens to us all. I mean, you know, lots mm-hmm. of us have families where we're the last person, but I realized, Oh yeah, I'm the end of that experience because by the time the next generation came along, that was over. There was no more gra- living with grandma. Not as much. And there weren't, there weren't that, I don't think that kind of your grandparents living on a ranch where you, your oh, yeah. family, your parents live some of the time, but not some of the time. I mean, I think that was yeah. much more common. And though that kind of ranching, at, it ended in California too. I mean, you know, for the big ranches and stuff. Yeah, it just seems so clear to me that a multi-generational family, well, really, that that child to, for every child to just be dependent on their actual biological mother and father or even adopted mother and father. Right. And mothers really need support. I mean, not that I have that much experience, but being with some women in villages, which are still village-oriented, just more of that sense of they're all there together yeah. making the tortillas at the market. And then you can see them sort of mm-hmm. taking care of the kids more communally because they know the kids. Well, we've introduced two utopian concepts. Yes. Of motherhood. Yes. That's right. <laughs> well, I think we should all think about the Mother's Day for Peace. I'm definitely going to think about it. Maybe we'll have a proposal. Yeah, I'm I'm really hoping that somebody I I always think that I'm the one who's going to take it up and make it happen, but then I get distracted by another idea. <laughs> it never happens. So I would love if somebody takes up this great cause of Mother's Day for Peace because certainly the uh world needs it now at least as much as it did after the Civil War. That's really true. Okay, so happy Mother's Day, everyone. Yes. Okay, bye-bye. Mothers and our mothers. Bye. You've been listening to the Crackpot Crones podcast with Terry Baum and Carolyn Myers. (laughs) 